Welcome back to Composer Quest. I'm your host in Minneapolis, Charlie McCarran, and in this show I talk with all kinds of creative people to find out how to write better music. In this episode I talk with Crystal Grooms Mangano about scoring documentaries and about the role of a music editor. They basically follow the score through the process into the mix and basically is there to handle the you know the organization and the business side of the process of composing for a film and allowing the composer to just be completely creative and not get worried about the details. Crystal recently finished scoring a documentary called Asperger's Are Us, which follows a comedy troupe of four autistic guys. Crystal talks about her process in deciding where to put score and where to let the comedy speak for itself. I thought I'd play a bit from one of the troupe's sketches to give you a taste of their comedy. Honey, can you come in here, please? What is it, baby? Some big news. Yeah? I'm pregnant. <laughs> oh, wow. That's really, really amazing news. I know, I think we're ready. I'm pretty shocked. <laughs> but I have some news, too. Yeah? It's going to make your news doubly amazing. <laughs> I'm bubble wrap. <laughs> I'm not a person. I'm just a big one. Really? When you walk down the street and you think we're holding hands, everyone else just sees you carrying a big one. Without further ado, let's get to my talk with Crystal Grooms Mangano. Hi, Crystal. Hi, Charlie. How are you? Good. How are you doing? I'm good. Thanks for uh, thanks for including me in your podcast. Yeah, definitely. Well, I first want to ask you about South by Southwest. Uh, sounded like you went there with the crew of your documentary, Asperger's Are Us. I did. I went this past March to the South by Southwest, South by Southwest Film Festival, and I actually, up until that point, I hadn't met the comedy troupe that's in the documentary, so that was really exciting for me as well. Yeah. Could you kind of explain um, what the documentary's about? And Yeah. So the documentary that we had at the festival is called Asperger's R Us, and it follows a comedy troupe based out of Boston. It's these four guys, and they all have Asperger's. And they met when they were uh, much younger at camp and kind of bonded over their love of humor and really found a way to connect with each other through that. And so it, they, uh, they formed these friendships and this comedy troupe, and the documentary follows them preparing for what they think might be their last show before they start to go their separate ways with you know, as as careers are starting to develop and people are going off to college and things like that. Cool. I was listening to a couple other interviews with you and it was interesting hearing you talking about how you had to score it kind of comedically, but not in a way that was like laughing at them, but with them kind of. Right. Their style of humor is very interesting. It's um, and it can be once you get used to it. I think you kind of you start to get it. it. Initially, it's just it's very dry. It kind of 
it takes a little while to to get to the punchlines and things. And so it's a, once you kind of get in their rhythm, then you really start to see where they're coming from and it really becomes funny. And so with the music, we wanted to be with them as they're creating their humor and with them in their comedy and not um, on the outside kind of just definitely didn't want to be laughing at them, want to be with, laughing with them. How do you score a comedy documentary, would you say? Like, what uh, what kind of scenes do you score and what kind of scenes do you leave as is? Well, you know, I think it's, it's so much about timing. Um, for this project... I just I started by kind of trying to create themes for each member of the troupe and kind of figuring out who they are and what their kind of sense of the world is and how they see it and how that gets reflected in their comedy. So by then kind of starting with each character, then I was able to develop a humorous aspect to that theme. And then it's more just a matter of timing, you know, to you want to you want to accent what's funny, but you don't want to, you don't want to lead the audience somewhere before, you know, it, it needs to be right, right as it's happening so that you're not stepping on the comedy. That's really important. You don't want to cover it up because then you've just completely not done your job. <laughs> but, yeah. um, that you, uh, you just want, you want to highlight it. And so it's, for me on this project, it was kind of a lot of trial and error actually. Um, as far as just, you know, you watch the scene and see where you want the audience to be and how you're going to get them there. And eventually you kind of, you end up at a place where I think you find it works. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I actually just finished up a documentary score myself. And oh, what is it? What's the film? Um, it's called Beyond the Thrill. It's a skydiving documentary, oh, which is cool. really fun. Um, yeah. But it's interesting, like, working on a documentary versus another film, because I felt mm -hmm. like I could get away with uh, almost anything in that one versus, like, a narrative film. I felt like I could do way more styles, and I don't know. Was that your experience? More, more styles in the documentary or more styles in the narrative? More styles in the documentary, yeah. Yeah, you know, it is interesting because it... it it does feel very different. I agree with you. Like it's, yeah, I just think that there, you're right. There's more opportunity for different styles and to kind of experiment a little bit more. I think people are more open to that in documentaries. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like listening to, um, the, a few of your tracks from Asperger's or us, it's like kind of, kind of goes from, uh, like kind of alien sound for the aliens at the show queue. To like, almost seemed like a Western comedy sort of thing with first rehearsal. Yeah, I was I was going for something kind of a little wacky and a little unpredictable. So I wanted it to feel a little off kilter and not quite solid, and have that kind of adventurous momentum to it where they're kind of embarking on this journey and they're just trying to figure out how to get there and that so that yeah that first rehearsal was a really fun one to write because it is just it's 
everything's just a little bit off. It doesn't quite groove together perfectly. I heard that you also originally had, like, I guess probably MIDI drums and then switched over to recording live drums for the score. I did. I was using, I used a MIDI percussion and some, you know, pre-recorded loops and things like that just to kind of get it going and to really show the feel because I think um, if you're, if that's something you're going to be using, then you've got to have it in there. And then ultimately my goal was to replace it. And I think replacing those drums really, really brought a lot of life to the score. It was a way to, you know, we didn't really have a budget for the score, so it was a way to add to it in a tremendous way that didn't tremendously affect the budget. So Yeah, that's interesting because uh, I would think the other way sometimes. Like, I, I'm not a drummer, so, um, but even like sample drums I can kind of fake uh, sure. just because they're like single sample hits. Um, but right. versus like strings or wind instruments or something, it's tougher. Right. But yeah, that I can see how the live drums are would be really important for that score. Just hearing the the samples. Right. Yeah. It was just. It was particular to this score because you're right. Like you, you would think normally maybe you would hire a, um, if anything, a soloist on you know the main instrument you're using or something to come in. And just for this one, it was so percussion and drum intensive that I knew that was going to make a big effect. And whereas everything else is a little, the sounds are a little more manipulated anyway. Sure. If you could say you learned one thing from this score, what would that be? I'm sure you learned more than one, but... (laughs) (laughs) Um, What did I learn from this score? I think I learned to just dive in you know you get it you get a project and for me I, I tend to you know I like to think about it for a while and I kind of get very in my head about it and you know what would you know what does such and such mean and and I just start getting very thought intensive about my process and I think this really showed me that you know that's great to do for a minute and then you've got to start diving in and you really discover so much once you're in it and working on it and to just be open to ideas and open to things that come along that you probably weren't planning on, but it kind of turns out as an accident and it ends up being in the film and it's, it's just a really fun process. And I think I learned to enjoy the process. Cool. Did you work with the Duplass brothers like while, while the film was happening or were they kind of just the hands-off executive producers? They were they were pretty hands-off on this project. I worked primarily with the director, Alex Lehman, and the other two producers, Sean Bradley and Chris Dowling. I'm excited to see it. when it, is it It's coming out on Netflix, right? Right, so Asperger's RS is coming out on Netflix. I don't know when. Uh, I, I'm anticipating sometime this fall, but I really am not basing that on it. Sure. I don't know. But it is. Uh, it will be playing at the uh, Independent Film Festival of Boston at the end of this month. Cool. So, a lot of your job also, it, from your credits, looked like 
being a music editor and music coordinator, I guess? Yeah, I do. Um, I do kind of a wide range of things <laughs> to keep myself busy. But there's a, a composer named Mark Leggett that I do a lot of work for. He's a really, you know, established composer, has been working in the industry for a long time. And it's been great working for him. I do a lot of different things for him. I work for him as a music editor, as a general studio assistant, manager, whatever needs to happen in the studio, I'm there to take care of. What is the role of a music editor for people who might not know? Sure. So uh, a music editor, the role of a music editor can depend a little bit on the project and the composer. It usually begins um, when you're working with the composer as their music editor. It begins at the spotting session for a film, which is when the composer and the director sit down and go through the film and figure out where they want music and where they don't and you know, start discussing their overall plan, essentially, for the score. So the music editor is there to take notes and put that meeting together in a concise way that allows the composer to then start working through the score in an organized way. And so the music editor will also keep track of any changes that they make to the picture and how that's going to affect the score as the composer's working. And then the music editor can be involved with editing any music that's in the film that the composer did not create. You know, if there's something that was licensed, sometimes the music editor will be brought in to help with that. Or if there are changes to the film that don't necessarily require the scene to be rescored, just slightly adjusted, the music editor will handle that. And then um, they basically follow the score through the process into the mix and make sure that everything gets delivered as the composer wants and basically is there to handle the, you know, the organization and the business side of the process of composing for a film and allowing the composer to just be completely creative and not get worried about the details and, you know, they, they aren't scrambling to figure out how many cues they still have left. They've got their music editor letting them know what's going on and where they're at and keeping everybody on track. Okay. I, that's interesting because I, I mean, I have worked on indie films, but it's always been, there's never been that uh, role split in stuff I've right. worked on. So if someone wanted to be a music editor versus just composer, what, what kind of skills do you think um, they should learn? Or I think firstly... In my experience, they should. Um, if you want to pursue working as a music editor, the first thing is to learn how to use the program Pro Tools. That has shown to be the kind of industry standard, at least in my experience, for what music editors use. And so that just being fast and efficient in that program is really kind of very helpful and necessary and will just take a lot of headaches away if you're already proficient in that. Um, one thing about the music editor position is the relationship with the composer. And so if you can find a composer that you believe in and enjoy their music and enjoy their process and enjoy working with, I think that that's just fantastic. And then basically just having a lot of organizational skills. <laughs> it's a lot of file management. It's a lot of time management. You become well-versed in spreadsheets very quickly. <laughs> 
I really enjoy the role of music editor. I like working with composers and seeing their process. You learn so much from watching other people work. It's a really, I enjoy it a lot. Yeah. What, what kind of differences have you noticed between uh, different composers you've worked with? I think there's some kind of basic differences when it comes to some composers are very reliant on technology. Others are very reliant on acoustic instruments. Others, you know, like to record right from the beginning. Um, others will, you know, write and write and write and then record all at the end. Um, Where are you on the spectrum of composing first on paper or something? Or are, do you kind of just start recording right away? I I like to record later. For me, it's easier to keep track of what I'm doing if I just kind of stay a little bit compartmentalized in that aspect and write until I feel like I've got it ready. And then, then I like to record at the end. It just helps me stay focused that way. I, I find it I can get a little too distracted or a little off, off course if I start trying to record in the composing process. The only thing that I guess would change that is if you've got something that is going to be really exposed or really, you know, it'll be, it would be really important for the director to hear it live uh, to form an opinion on whether or not they liked it, that, that might change that. The other reason is um, budgetary constraints too. You know, I don't have access to players or to the recording studio throughout the entire process. You know, I've kind of got a localize that and get it so if I can wait and do everything at the end it it works better for time and money yeah so when when you're talking about writing it beforehand is that actually writing on paper or is it more like in finale or is it just strictly in whatever da you're working in yeah so I typically for for at least for Asperger's RS I was working primarily on a program called Logic. So I was using sampled instruments to try and create the the sound and the overall tonalities that I was looking for. So that's where I did most of my writing. I didn't do a lot of paper and pencil for this. I usually do when I'm kind of working on my own projects that aren't to picture, just more concert pieces, that's when I go to, to paper and pencil. I just find it easier to work things out that way. But for usually for the film, it's easier because you've got the film in front of you. You can kind of keep going back and watching the scene over and over again. It's just a little easier when scoring to picture. Yeah. I guess on the business side of film composing, do the gigs come to you at this point, or are you constantly seeking out gigs right now I'm still very much so seeking out the gigs um it was great because Asperger's RS kind of came to me in a roundabout way a friend of mine was uh Sean Bradley who's one of the producers on the film brought me in and so that was one that I didn't really know about in advance and didn't pursue as I have some of the other projects that I work on but it even once you become more established and maybe people are seeking you out, I think it, it's just a big part of the job to go find those projects that you're interested in. You know, what do you want to explore and what would you find challenging? And, and so staying 
in touch with upcoming projects and what what people are working on is really important um, because it helps you not only get the get new jobs but it also helps you find jobs that are going to be a good fit for you yeah and where do you go to look for those kind of gigs or is it networking with people at events or online sort of things or it's a it's a combination of both a lot of it ultimately comes from networking with people but it's i think it's important to stay in touch with what what is going on in the industry at large um you know i like to check in there's a uh, website deadline.com that has a lot of industry news throughout the day I also, you know, I refer to IMDb a lot, just checking in, seeing what people have done, or if you see a project that looks interesting, it's great to be able to go and see what what the people have done beforehand, what were their films before, and what kind of styles do they like, is it something that you're interested in. Do you ever cold call directors if you see they're starting up a project or that kind of thing? You know, I don't have, the, the cold calling is not very effective. Sure. Um, I think it, <laughs> unfortunately, I mean, it's probably the hardest way to go about doing it, but it also, you never know. You might get somebody on, a, on you know, at the right moment and they, they might be open to listening to your music and then they happen to, on your website and they love it. So, you know, it's, I wouldn't say that it's a waste of time. I just don't know, you know, the percentage of projects that come out of that are probably not... Um, yeah. not super high. Yeah. Um, a lot, yeah, a lot of it comes from just people, you know, or going, you know, go to your local film festival, watch the film, see what you liked. You know, you liked a certain film, get in touch with their director, even before they're working on their next project and meet with them, say, you know, let them know that you enjoyed their film and why, and that you'd, you know, be interested in working with them and try and stay in touch. That can be a really proactive way to do it. And, it tends to have better results than just straight cold calling, you know, I'd like to work on your project. Mm -hmm. I was also going to say there's a a website called mandy.com that, uh, M-A-N-D-Y, that posts a lot of different production jobs they do. It's not just composing, it's production all across the board. Um, But people post there a lot for independent films looking for composers or sound work or things like that. So that can be a really good resource as well. Okay. Yeah, I've checked out that site, and I I couldn't tell if it was, like, actually going to be useful or if it was more of a scam site, but that that's <laughs> good to hear that it is actually it's, useful. You no, know, it is, and I think you've, you've got to, the thing that you, the only thing that I would think would be, Larry, is, you know, you've got to, you know, a lot of those projects are going to be very low-paid or no-paid, and so they can be great experiences and really kind of boost your resume, boost your confidence, and have a lot of really great results from working on those projects. It, it will most likely be low pay, though. Sure. Uh, well, I saw the trailer on your site for the Patrick Stewart movie, Match. Yes. Um, so did you write the music for the trailer only, or are you scoring the the film. I did the music just for the trailer for that film. There was another composer that scored the film and then they brought me in to do the trailer. And I hadn't really done something like that before. So that was also again a learning experience of it's very it's trailer music I 
have a huge respect for people that compose for trailers because you've got to immediately get the emotion and you've got to change, you know, within, within the trailer, the, the style's going to change, the emotion's going to change very quickly and you've got to figure out ways to transition smoothly. And it was, that was, uh, more challenging than I anticipated, but a really fun. And like I said, I have newfound great respect for, for trailer composers. Yeah. It kind of seemed weird to me at first when I learned that a lot of trailer music is not composed by the composer of the films. Right. Um, yeah. No, it's, it's interesting. I kind of had that same thought when I did, I had that same realization. I just always thought, why wouldn't they score the trailer? And I think it's just, it's such a, a different art form. And I think it's also, you know, it could be just timing and that by the time they're doing the trailer, the composer is either scoring the film and doesn't have time to do the trailer or the project's finished and they've moved on to another project. Yeah. Well, I liked what you did with the match trailer. Thank um, you. Yeah. Very nice piano arpeggios. approach for that was they they had tempted with a few different pieces so that was really helpful because I knew what their goal was and we went through many many versions of that trying to get it right and ultimately for me it was just like I had mentioned those transitions getting from one style into the other in a in a smooth interesting way was the biggest challenge Have you worked on any other trailers? I haven't worked on any other trailers. That's the only one that I've done. I would be very interested in doing more trailers because, like I said, I think it's such an, um, a different way of composing that I, I didn't really know about before, and I really enjoyed it. I thought it was uh, a lot of fun, and it it's kind of like working on a, you know, a, a very condensed short film. Yeah. I have to mention the birds I'm hearing in the background. It's, oh, sorry. Is, a, that, is it too loud? Oh, no, no. It's nice. It's a nice touch to <laughs> okay. the interview. Because um, right now it's snowing here in Minnesota, so <laughs> it's nice to have some sounds of spring. Or... <laughs> I have a little bit of spring outside. Yeah, I uh, we have on the balcony of our little apartment here, we have um, a lot of bougainvillea, and the birds just love it. So they're out there every morning. Oh, what what is that? Bougainville? It's it's a um it's kind of like a big flowering bush that just gets large and takes over. It's um they're really brightly colored like pink and orange and yellow and all that kind of stuff. Okay. So you're in LA, right? Yes, I am in Los Angeles. And where did you grow up? I grew up in Wyoming in Casper, Wyoming, which is right in the middle, and lived there until I went to college. I went to Montana State University in Bozeman, Montana, and studied film and music there, and then moved to L.A. shortly after. So it was a, an interesting transition going from Wyoming to Montana to Los Angeles, but it's been good so far. That's good. 
Was it tough to make connections at first when you first moved there? Or? One thing that's been really great about coming to Los Angeles is there's a big network of other filmmakers that went to Montana State University out here. So there's a whole kind of Montana contingent of people out here that are very tend to stay very close with each other and help each other network and find jobs and have been very influential in helping other people from Montana that moved down um, get involved in the industry. So that's been a really great asset. That's interesting because uh, I just interviewed Sage Lewis mm-hmm. um, on Wednesday. Yeah. And he said kind of the same thing about like how the schools are how you kind of group together in Los Angeles. At least he was saying there's the California schools out there kind of have their own cliques in the film industry. But yeah, it's interesting also that Montana has a a clique. Yeah, they they definitely do. It's uh, it's great. They're very helpful in just everything from moving down here and figuring out where you should live to just kind of navigating the city and figuring out how everything works. Cool. What projects are you working on right now? So right now I'm working on a World War II movie with uh, composer Mark Leggett that I mentioned previously. And then I've got another documentary that I'll be working on starting sometime soon. I'm not quite sure when. They're still in the process of editing. They're doing some animation for it. What's the documentary about? The documentary, it's about uh, consciousness and the human mind and how we connect and it's still kind of early in the stage of me watching the film. So I I still have a lot to learn about what the film actually is. Okay. uh, Do you have an idea of where your scoring will go for that yet? That one I think is going to be a a very different style than Asperger's RS. I think that one is going to be, have a lot more strings. I'm hoping to use a quartet and have it be, kind of a, an intimate organic sound. Have you written much for string quartet? Or I haven't written too much for string quartet. I've done some work with string quartets with my work for Mark Leggett. And then just c- going through school, working, playing with orchestras, writing for orchestras while I was at Montana State, got some experience there. And so I'm excited to kind of tap back into those experiences and, and bring them out again. Yeah. W- what's your main instrument? My main instrument is the flute. That's what I, I studied at, uh, in college along with my film studies. And so that's what I continue to play today. I still play piano. That was my fir- Piano was my first instrument. And I definitely have a, a huge love for piano. So between, between those two, that's kind of where I lie. Huh. I do love the sound of flute. And I've been trying to work it into my scores in some mm-hmm. way, but I don't know. I It's not an instrument that you hear in too many film scores, it seems like. Yeah, you know, it's an interesting instrument because it doesn't, when, when I add it to my scores, it's like, well, you know, as you know, anytime you add a, a live instrument to a score that's using samples, that live instrument just comes through so clearly and just, it, it can be a challenge to blend the two. Um, I think flute is just, it's a very strong instrument, especially on its own. It really stands out and kind of 
can draw draw attention to itself. So if you're not wanting that, it's, yeah. <laughs> it's hard to use. But it, it blends so well in, in an orchestra setting. It really just adds a lot of color. Yeah. Well, what kind of a film could have a, a flute in the score, do you think? I think... I don't know. I think any kind of film could have a flute in the score. It depends on how you want to use it. I think it I'm I'm always fascinated by different effects that you can do with the flute, not only just, you know, as you're playing, but also afterwards. I really like manipulating sounds. And so the flute can be a really interesting instrument to use because you can tweak it in ways that people don't know what the sound is. And it just can have a very haunting effect. I used it in a horror film that I did recently where I basically I, I used the the flute but ran it through some guitar effects. So through some hmm. different guitar pedals. Um, and so it just has a very eerie, unknown sound to it. You don't, you know, it doesn't, you think it might be a flute, but it just doesn't sound right, <laughs> basically. <laughs> Sounds a little bit a little bit wrong and so that can be kind of a fun way to use it as well. Hmm, that's cool. Yeah, I didn't think about horror films that I suppose there are kind of a lot of those flute effects. Right, cuz it can, it can be so chilling too, you know. Yeah. Yeah, it's weird because it is like a sign tone. I mean, people always use it as the example of like very simple sine waves, mm -hmm. but the breathiness is so much different than any other instrument. Exactly. It it yeah. It it has a very pure tone, but it also has a very airy tone at the same time. It's it's interesting. You know, the there's one score that I love. The use of it is uh, Chocolat. I don't know if you've heard oh, that that score. I, I've seen the movie, but I can't remember what the score is like. It's yeah, it's beautiful. I mean, there's a there's a bunch of kind of guitar and almost like a, a gypsy vibe to it, but there's there's a great theme that uses the flute and the piano. It's nice. I would, if you're if you're interested in writing for flute, I would listen to that because it's really it's really beautiful. Cool. Yeah, I'll have to watch that again. That was Rachel Portman that did that score. That's one of my favorites, actually. Cool. So I have a tradition on the show where we have a question chain going from guest to guest. Okay. So Sage Lewis, like I said, was my last guest. Yes. And he, I told him I was interviewing you. Okay. And so he knew you lived in Los Angeles. So he asked the question... If you were to write a piece of music for the city of Los Angeles, kind of like a score for the city, okay, what would your music sound like? I kind of almost think it might sound a little cacophonous. <laughs> <laughs> I think it would have to be a blend of so many different styles and instruments. I mean, the city is just so full of so many different things and experiences. I mean, you've got you know people on the streets downtown, so you, I would probably have a little bit of that street musician feel but then you've got the Hollywood Bowl where you can go and hear these great pop concerts in the summer and there's just so much here in Los Angeles I think it would be I think it would just be such a wild blend of styles I think it would be just 
I think a, a little crazy, actually. <laughs> <laughs> do you have a question for my next guest? Who do you know who your next guest is going to be? Nope. <laughs> wow. Okay. So just a completely most open likely a composer. But imagine a composer. Um, maybe you know how often do you revisit work that you did in the past and add to it? You know, if you had a, a a project that you did maybe 10 years ago and you really liked the music, do you ever go back and revisit it and, you know, try and elaborate on it or do you just kind of let it, let it be what it is? Hmm. That's a good question. Yeah. I don't know. Do you revisit stuff from years ago? I, you know, it's, it's interesting. I'm definitely a person that likes to kind of let things lie. Like once I've decided they're finished, I like to move on and just let them be what they are. But I know a lot of people just, it's, I think it's tough to ever consider something finished. And so I know a lot of other composers will just, you know, work on various pieces for, for quite some time, even even after the deadline has come and gone. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I guess for me, it's like, I don't think I ever revisit instrumental Mm -hmm. things. Uh, But sometimes I feel like kind of compelled to go back to my old songs that I wrote. Okay. Um, I don't know. Yeah. Because I haven't been as inspired to write lyrics for stuff, for things lately. But now I kind of, it's interesting going back to my old songs that I used to write lyrics for. And writing lyrics is something that I just I have always wanted to do, and I just haven't haven't figured out how to do it yet. I just think that's such a a unique talent to be able to write lyrics. I just it's such a a difficult thing for me. Yeah. Um, but I, yeah, I would love to do it. But I think that's great that you're able to do that. I'm just so always amazed by people that are able to write compelling lyrics. <laughs> Well, I didn't say they were good, but... <laughs> well, sure they're better than what I've written. Oh. I would not share anything I've written with anybody so oh. far. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's tough because it's so personal, too, if you're singing it. Right. E- even if the story in the song isn't about you, it's like, obviously, you came up with the ideas for it. That's <laughs> Right. It's... It's a it's a part of you in a, in a very kind of obvious way. I mean, I think music is so personal in general, and then once you add an actual lyrical story to it, it just magnifies that. Mm-hmm. I you know I have kind of a, a love hate relationship with performing. It's definitely something that I I have to kind of get my nerve up to do, but once I do it, I really enjoy it. So for people that are out there, you know, on a weekly basis performing for a crowd, that's just amazing to me. I don't know how how they have the energy to do that. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's it's a uh, yeah, it could just be so scary sometimes. Yeah. Do you think that's why you're drawn to film scoring because it is kind of like behind the scenes? I think so. You know, I I do love performing and especially playing with other musicians, but I definitely tend to be a person who likes to be behind the scenes and kind of working in the background. Yeah. Well, thanks for coming on. Thanks so much for having me on your show. This has been really fun. Thanks for joining me for this episode of Composer Quest with Crystal Grooms Mangano. 
You can hear more of her music at crystalmangano.com. And that's spelled M-A-N-G-A-N-O. Thanks to the guys in Asperger's R Us for letting me use a clip from their video, I'm Pregnant, at the start of this episode. You can find more of their videos on YouTube or search for them on Facebook. If you want to get in touch with me, feel free to email me, charlie at composerquest.com, or find ComposerQuest on Facebook or Twitter. Now it's time for another... Last week, I talked about a film I was scoring and how I tried connecting the dots between two scenes to get past a creative block. In this episode, I want to expand on that idea of connecting different music cues to enhance a film's narrative arc. I'll play some examples from the skydiving documentary I worked on to hopefully give you some tools to use in your own film scores. The documentary follows a team of competitive skydivers. Competitive skydiving is kind of like synchronized swimming in the air. The teams record their jumps on camera so judges can review the number of successful formations they made during a jump. In the documentary, we follow this team through their ups and downs to the climax of the film when they go to compete at nationals. First though, the film starts with the team members talking about how they were afraid of skydiving. The very first jump, I didn't want to go at all. I cried the entire flight up. Yeah, I was scared. I was the last one to go, so I watched everyone else go before me. Looking out and thinking, if I get out of here alive, I'm never coming back. What a stupid idea. I can't believe I'm up here. My scoring for this section was probably inspired by the Weezer song, Only in Dreams, which uses a repeating bass line to create one of the most simple but effective buildups. So I thought I'd start with a simple bass and guitar idea. I knew I'd want the tempo to increase very gradually over time, so prior to recording, I modified the tempo envelope in Ableton Live. That way the metronome would follow this tempo change. It's so gradual, it's almost imperceptible, but I think it subconsciously gets your blood pumping. After two minutes of buildup, we get to a small climax. But instead of a resolution, the beat drops out and we're floating down to earth, mirroring the visuals at this point. Now that I had this bass theme stuck in my head, it would sneak back into my score in several other places. That's one advantage to listening back to your score over and over again. You start to live and breathe the motives you've written, and you'll probably weave them into your other cues, even if it's by accident. For example, by the time I wrote the cue for the team's trip to nationals, it felt like I was channeling the general sound world of the score, rather than a specific theme. It was only later that I realized I'd stolen the melody from the very first cue.
also brought this theme back in a calm scene where they talk about the emotional cleansing they feel while jumping. When the skydiving team was competing at nationals, they made a major mistake in their fifth round. They appeared to be out of the running, and they were ready to give up completely. But they banded together and decided to go for it. It was the perfect time for the musical payoff. started packing our shoots, and I started thinking more about it, and I started looking at the jumps remaining, and I started looking at the scoreboard and assessing how, how far behind we were going to be now. The next jump, if we had the best one of our lives ever, and the other teams just did mediocre or even had a bad jump, we could make up a huge amount of points. My idea was to begin the cue the same way as the start of the film, with the simple bass and guitar buildup. But instead of the fake-out climax like before, this time there's a huge climax and sustained intensity during the entire unedited shot of their sixth round jump. In this section, I have almost the same basic chord structure as before, but it's in a different context. Prior to this climax, the bass was melodically playing the thirds. But now the bass is hitting the actual root notes to give it more weight. This was actually the toughest part of the score to mix because I had built up so many layers in an attempt to make it more powerful. I had to weed away some of those ideas, but it's still pretty dense in the end. Since I was introducing all these new motives on top, I wanted to have at least one of them connect to the rest of the score. After the climax of the film, there's a montage with more skydiving shots and I thought this would be a great scene to bring back one of these new motives. The obvious route for a sports montage like this would be to score it with intense fist-pumping music. But since we've just had the build-up to the climax with about 10 minutes straight of intense music, I decided to leave space during the first part of this montage to be later filled in by simple wind sounds from the sound designer. After the audience had this space to enjoy the natural beauty of these jumps, I brought the new theme in very subtly under the narrator. Being involved in this great, beautiful sky, this big atmosphere, this big act of nature with all the clouds and the wind and the sun. It's just this big dynamic painting and you're involved in it. You're, you're caught up in it. Finally, to leave the audience energized at the end of the movie, I fade into a reprise of the round six jump music.
I hope you enjoyed this breakdown on my score. If you're interested in this skydiving documentary, look for Beyond the Thrill on Facebook to stay updated about its release. For more of these composition and production lessons, visit composerquest.com cmpl or search for this mini-podcast, Charlie's Music Production Lessons, on iTunes or on any other podcast app. Thank you.